to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watch The Day of the Locust. An art director in the 1930s falls in love and attempts to make a young woman an actress despite Hollywood, who wants nothing to do with her because of her problems with an estranged man and her alcoholic father. That synopsis is not for this film, because... This movie's so bad. <laughs> uh like just all the content warnings there's so much bad stuff in this movie there is um many instances of using the n-word yes there is a cockfight uh-huh um there is an attempted rape yes uh it's really not good not good (sighs) and then i still don't like i don't get the point of the movie at all (laughs) like i'm watching like, I'm watching this movie, and I was like, okay, he clearly likes her, and he wants her, and she won't give it up for him. And, like, they they're kind of like, the dad is like, she's the CT, isn't he? And he's like, yeah, if I'm allowed to say that, she is, which is horrible and not a thing. But yes. also, I'm like, I get what's happening here. I get this conversation. But, like, at the same time, it's just like, so what's the, like, okay, so he wants her, and he can't have her, and it's just, this is horrible. This movie's horrible. Well, that's the first half of to two thirds of the movie, and then the last third is the complete burning down of the image of Hollywood, which is what the movie should have been from the very beginning. If you're going to lead up to an ending that is that surreal and wild and violent, the oh. rest of the movie should have led up to that. Oh, that's another uh, content warning. There's a child murder. Yes, it's bad. <laughs> This movie is just bad. I do not recommend. (laughs) I'm going to put it out that I think there's a far more interesting and better way to tell this story. I think the kernel and nugget of the story is interesting. From what I know that the story itself, because this is adapted from another work. Okay. Does include a lot of these same themes, but it's made around a point, right? To me, this is a lot like A Clockwork Orange, where it's all flash and no substance. Sure. And the difference between the book and the movie Mm -hmm. is that the book actually tries to provide a rationale and an understanding of the characters, and this movie doesn't. And it's interesting because the people who criticized this movie at the time said, it's wild, it has a lot to say about Hollywood, but it also is a mess. And that is for sure true. I think there is something better to be found here Mm -hmm. but boy howdy the way they did it was awful it's god awful it's horrible because it has no understanding or context to try to make sense of what it wants to say which is hollywood is a horrible place hollywood is a horrible place that will spit you up and chew you out and just make you feel like garbage while you're there yeah It, it can either make you feel amazing or like garbage and sometimes it's it's the same thing and you don't realize it while it's happening to you, which is interesting. And we've seen other films try to like show that, which is also part of why the Oscars, whenever you you have a movie that has that glimpse into the industry, they get obsessed with it because it is this weird thing. It's like we love it, but it's so hard and it's miserable, but you're addicted to it. That's why the Academy gets so obsessed with things like that. But this movie's horrible. (laughs) This movie ultimately leaves the audience feeling like that. Yeah. But the problem is that the audience didn't come here for that. They came here 
either to be entertained mm-hmm. or to be able to sit and take a critical eye at it. Sure. And instead, you gave them that feeling and experience, mm-hmm. which there are people who would argue that's good. I don't agree. Because <laughs> why are we fucking watching your movie if that's the case? Mm-hmm. The budget for this movie isn't completely pinned down, but it was roughly around $4.5 to $5 million. Its total gross was $18 million. By most accounts, it was a total flop. Yeah. And rightfully so. What? What even is this? How are you actually going to show this in movie theaters to people? Mm-hmm. Like this movie specifically. Per Karen Black, the film took actually seven months to make. They started filming in fall 1973. Mm-hmm. So it was already a long shoot had a very lackluster opening, and then just kind of poof, disappeared off off everything. And the reason we're really talking about it here is its visuals. That is the thing that caught the Academy's eye. The photography, the art direction, the costumes, things like that. That's the biggest reason this got in for the 75 Oscars. Okay. And, and we'll, we'll debate those merits as we go along. But I, I'll tell you now, I don't think it's the story that they were captivated by. We'll talk about our writing. This is based on a novel by an author named Nathaniel West. He was a contemporary of James Joyce and F. Scott Fitzgerald. He wrote this and a novel called Miss Lonely Hearts, and then worked as a script doctor and a writer in Hollywood. He himself died a young, tragic death. They were coming off the death of his friend Fitzgerald, and he was known to be a terrible driver, sped through a red light, and got in a car wreck. Mm-hmm. Part of that whole generation... <laughs> But as far as I've seen, his novel is much more blunt and direct about the satire that this story is taking. All these characters are completely bad, and they're being corrupted by this town and everything it stands for. And he's doing a takedown of Hollywood, which to me, there's a way to make that movie. True. But to do this pseudo surreal, pretentious reinterpretation of it... It's like they wanted to tell a bunch of different stories and they didn't know how. It's like the opposite of Nashville. <laughs> it, it is. Okay. So like we have the starlet who's in the system. Then you have this art director guy who wants to move up through the system. And then you have the Donald Sutherland character who has this deep religious shame thing who falls in love with a starlet. And so he gets con- like, and he's kind of like this bridge to the faith healers who are commenting and shaming the industry while also making money off the industry and they're making money off of all of this bullshit which is an interesting like piece of it okay cool and it's just like okay fine those are a bunch of different pieces and then you also have all these people who they all live in this they have this common courtyard set up but there's no actual story like, there's no, hey, we're all, we all moved in here at the same time. We're all working on the same block. Or, like, hey, I'm the old timer. I've been here forever. Let me show you the ropes, newcomer. Or, like, there's just no follow through. It's like, we're going to go here and then we're going to go here and then we're going to have this creepy scene and then we're going to have this creepy scene and then we're going to have this and then just crazy yelling. Like, the dot, it's just, there's no through line. It makes no sense. I literally spent the whole film being like, what is this movie about? What is this movie about? Who am I supposed to care about? Oh, these are all horrible people. And I can get on board with a movie about nothing but horrible people. Right. 
I love Succession. There is no redeemable person in that show. I will say, for me, <laughs> the content and issues that we have with this movie, for me, the reason that they're so offensive is that they don't tie to anything. They're just there. And and the whole premise there is that, well, that's what it would have been like. But it's like, but that doesn't matter when you're showing us this story. Sure. And it's just like they don't, like, the rape only shows his jealousy and desire for the woman. But who cares? You, do, <laughs> you don't have to attempt to rape a woman to show that. No. And the cockfight is literally just a bunch of dudes in a garage on a party night. That's it. They could have been doing literally anything else. When instead, what we should have seen is Todd Hackett's character devolving slowly along with this painting he's making Mm -hmm. because this town is corrupting him. Sure. That's how you make that work. But you never gave anybody any of that. You just assumed that we'd all guessed that. Well, and it would have been interesting if when he came to town, he was super buttoned up. And then as he's been here the longer, like, things don't bother him anymore. He's not buttoned up anymore. Oh, the sexy things don't bug him anymore because he really likes all the sexy things or all the drinking. I'm all about all the drinking, the gambling, which should be legal. Let's go gamble. Let's do it all. Whatever was taboo before, he's all in on. It's like, oh, I've been completely corrupted by the system. So that when we see that final moment and he recognizes the horror that he painted on this wall coming to fruition, we're all horrified with him. Yeah. You know who can make this today? The guy who made The Lighthouse. (laughs) That kind of surrealist vision of everything falling apart and melting. It would look much better. I don't know because I I don't I waffle on the lighthouse. The performances are great. The story, meh. still a good movie. Still a good movie. Like I'm not like shitting on it. It's just kind of I don't I don't love the surrealist stuff. I don't love it. Somebody in their criticism at the time because they were kind of awed by it. And, and there's a there's a way in which the shock of this movie could kind of put you in that headspace. Sure. But they were like, it's one of the best non-horror horror movies that's ever made. And I was like, if you'd structured this like a horror movie, it would work. Sure. I mean, if you look at Parasite, some of the things that happen in that film are jaw-dropping just because you are not expecting that from that film. And so when the child gets murdered, you're like, what the fuck? What the fuck is happening? And that's shocking. Yeah. And if you'd led up to that with any sort of understanding. I mean, and if I'm if I if I'm looking at the film, if I'm looking back on it now as, as a horror film, like, yeah, you kind of laid the seeds for that. Because that child's an asshole the whole fucking movie. And Homer is clearly ready to he's, explode he's somehow. On, he's on a hair trigger. Something is going to cause him to explode. He's going to do something bad. And that's what it ended up being. But it's hollow. It's, it's so hollow. It's so hollow. You know, it is. There's so many moments of imagery that are a little bit like, wow, but they they ring hollow every time because you didn't give us any meat to pay that off. And if there was any meat to pay that off, this movie could have been so good. <laughs> so our writer for the screenplay is Waldo Salt. Waldo was a pretty well-regarded screenwriter through the 30s and 40s and then got blacklisted during the Red Scare. Uh, he continued to write under other names like many of those writers did, but he made a big comeback hitting his actual big writing peak in the late 60s and early 70s. He wrote Midnight Cowboy, The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight, Serpico, 
this and coming home five very well regarded movies through the late 60s early 70s having seen midnight cowboy which is admittedly kind of just as rough a watch as this but has a through line does have a story to back it up that's the 1970 best picture winner yeah and serpico which is actually a great fucking detective thriller it's another one i haven't seen like this is not a guy who writes necessarily shitty scripts. And I'm mixed on this screenplay because I think there is story here. I think it got obfuscated by the style and the directing. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's at least a halfway decent script here. I wouldn't call it great, but I would call it there. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Okay. It's so disjointed. And I'm there's a direct like that also is that a problem with the director and the editing as well, because some of those things you can fix. But ultimately, I mean, this movie blows. I, I'm going to put the responsibility on the writing. Huh? I'm, I'm going to blame the director and the editor, too, because some of that you could have fi- you could tightened up with that stuff. But the writing sucks. Like these characters are horrible. These there's stuff in these scenes that's horrible. And unless you told me that that stuff was added by the director, I, I don't care. The like, characters are empty for sure. They they have nothing behind them. There's no motivation for any, literally anything. And that was not also not added by our director. So this writing sucks. <laughs> no, thank you. Do not recommend. So let's talk about our director. Another highly regarded person in film, John Schlesinger, British director of acclaim. Before this, he directed Billy Liar, Darling, Far From the Matting Crowd, Midnight Cowboy, and Sunday Bloody Sunday. After this, Marathon Man, Yanks, The Falcon and the Snowman, Pacific Heights, The Innocent, and Eye for an Eye. I haven't seen any of those. I've seen Midnight Cowboy. I've actually seen Billy Liar, which is a fun little like slice of life mm-hmm teen drama from britain from the 1960s it's really good ah this is not good (laughs) he's making so many stylistic choices that make no fucking sense agreed like again i i look at this stuff and for me there's an aesthetic to this movie that i actually really like especially the surreal moment at the end i was split in that moment because i'm sitting there like i love this as an ending to a movie Mm -hmm. but not this movie Mm. I, me personally, I like seeing things devolve into that kind of an ending, but you've got to have done the groundwork to lead up to something like that. Yeah. There is this possibility laid out for us. Mm. This mural he paints makes sense. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And then all of a sudden it explodes. But what did you give us in the story to get us there? Nothing. And it took two and a half hours. I'm reminded of the Black Dahlia. Oh my God. When you said that after it's like, I was right. Absolutely. It's got some really cool visuals and the time period is the same and it's Hollywood adjacent and it's just, what did I just watch? The director is relying solely on style and tone yeah, to get the point across that this town is horribly corrupt. And it's just, it's just, it's bad. It's yeah, just, yeah. it's bad. It's bad. <sighs> it's just bad. If there's a theme for this entire year of slate of movies that we've watched, it's Oh my God, you could have done so much with this. <laughs> I mean, we like, we really like to try to like give people 
Eh, we don't try to give them the benefit of the doubt. We try to be like, this is what they could have done. We try to fix it. We do try to fix it and be like, we see what you were going for. This is where you missed the mark. If we had just done X instead of Y, we could have we could have hit Homer. Like that's what we really try to go here. We try, like we do. Yeah. Fuck this movie. <laughs> so no trivia about our director. But cinematographer Conrad L. Hall, who we'll remember from In Cold Blood, oh, okay. which visually stunning film, sure. also photographed this film. And I got to say, I had to get my head past the, this is not the greatest print of the movie in the world. Okay. But I think there is some really stunning visual work done by the camera. Not going to say that that's any credit other than our cinematography. Hmm. One of the things he did was he used diffusion filters and camera angles that allowed sunlight to bounce off the characters and objects in frame. It's okay. a very common motif you see throughout the movie of really oversaturated sunlight mm. and lights bouncing off of people. And it, it almost washes them out even more than it makes them feel ethereal. This is widely considered one of the best photographed films of the 1970s. I don't know that I agree. I think there's moments. There's definitely moments where I went, oh, oh, that's very cool image. It's okay, but it's not great. Also, and and I am loath to praise Stanley Kubrick for anything, but it's not Barry Lyndon. No. Barry Lyndon's still, like, way more sumptuous than this. Yeah. <laughs> who could have been better? Peter Bogdanovich, who directed The Last Picture Show and Paper Moon. Honestly, wouldn't have thrown the surrealism in and mm -hmm. probably would have found the through line. Okay. Having seen The Last Picture Show, Bogdanovich is also kind of a pretentious director, but he's pretentious in that way where he still tries to find the through line with his characters. Okay. So it still would have been a little artsy-fartsy, but at least we would have had something to hang our hat on <laughs> instead of whatever this bullshit was. And that leads us to our cast. And we start, weirdly, with Donald Sutherland playing Homer Simpson. Uh, yeah, I mean, like it took a minute to get past the Homer <laughs> Simpson of it all. It's just a coincidence. I know that. But yeah, that that was bound to give me a chuckle. We talked about him last year for The Dirty Dozen. Mm -hmm. He's a great actor. We, we've got lots of credits for him, and I'm not going to go through them all because we don't need to spend that much time on it. No. This performance? At least he's committed he's very committed to what he's doing i don't like him i'm not supposed to like him but also i don't like him because i don't like what his character like his character wasn't given anything of substance like i don't know anything about his character like when we first meet him like i genuinely think he's a criminal and he's hiding like i almost think he's squatting in the house and that would have been such a great backstory and then when she's spending all this money and he's just not saying anything i'm almost like he has no money and she's just spending nothing. She's spending air. Like that would have been such a better conflict to just like, cause we, again, we still knew nothing about him at that point. He's just the creepy guy who she felt. Okay. They set him up as such a serial killer type. He, I know. And I wish they could have leaned into that more, especially because of the explosion at the end. Yeah. So either they needed to lean into that more or, Donald Sutherland needed to get his shit together and figure out how to play just a hapless cuckold. Like, he's that's what he should be playing. Yeah. But he doesn't get that role at all. No. Like, I think that's what the intention is here. And Donald Sutherland, 
he's got too much presence for that. They also mentioned him being an old man. And I was like, I would have liked a guy 20 years older playing this role. Mm. Seriously, get somebody older to do this shit. Because yeah. Donald Sutherland ain't it. It's just, the movie's not good. So if you wanted to make him a disturbed person who's capable of extreme violence, okay, then let's roll with that. But I don't think that's what the script called for. And then I think he's missing that mark. You, of course, might recognize the character name, Homer Simpson. Yes. It is a coincidence Granick had a family member named Homer. But as a gag, Donald Sutherland voiced a character in Lisa the Iconoclast that meets Homer Simpson. Yeah. <laughs> Next, we have Karen Black playing Faye. She'd already made an appearance in this series for mm -hmm. a short period in Nashville playing Connie White. Mm -hmm. Before this, TV then broke out with Easy Rider, then Five Easy Pieces, and Drive, he said. She had a run with Jack Nicholson there through the late 60s and early 70s. Mm -hmm. Rhinoceros, The Great Gatsby from 1974, and Airport 1975. After this movie, Nashville, Crime and Passion, Family Plot, Capricorn One, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, Homer and Eddie, The Player, House of a Thousand Corpses, and became a B-movie scream queen icon in the late 70s and early 80s. That is the vast majority of movies she does now. Mm -hmm. What do we think of Karen Black in this film? She's so hollow and not on purpose. I think she's really trying as hard as she can. Well, she's in the majority of the movie, and I feel like her character is supposed to be the through line. She has more character connections than anybody else, but they're meaningless. She is essentially meaningless, and they didn't give us any, they didn't ground her at all. If she doesn't have anybody else to help ground her through those other characters, then all of this effort that she's put into this character means nothing. Well, it's her character is hollow. Yeah. I would have been fine with her as her character being hollow because that would have made sense because all she cares about is finding a rich man to marry and take care of her. That is fine. Yeah. But there still has to be something behind that. And there's not. <laughs> there's just, there's nothing. There's no. nothing. No. So, meh. Nice. I'm, I'm coming around on your point about the script. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Karen Black alleges that the behind-the-scenes gossip surrounding this movie ruined her later career. Purportedly, Sutherland and Schlesinger cut her out of decision-making processes in the filming. Mm -hmm. So she was close to Waldo Salt and was able to kind of engineer some power that way. Mm. But she gained a reputation from this movie for being difficult to work with. Oh, okay. Because Donald Sutherland and John Schlesinger are asshole men. <laughs> yeah. And she basically says she lost out on big roles because of the, the stuff around this movie, which is a fucking shame because I'll say, out of all the performers, she's giving every fucking thing she can. Oh, I agree. And so... She she does not like to talk about the fact that she has basically made her living now through straight-to-video type movies, mm -hmm. but she pretty much says it was this. Yeah. And uh, cool, that helps me realize some other shit that goes on with this movie. Yep. Who could have been better? Goldie Hawn. Oh, interesting. Sally Struthers. No. 
and Raquel Welch. Schlesinger decided she was just too gorgeous for the role, which I kind of get. Raquel Welch was so stunning. <laughs> you have to be very careful if you put her in a sort of ingenue, yeah. unwitting type role because she's almost so pretty that she's going to own the chemistry of any scene. True. I mean, <laughs> I mean in some ways that might have helped, but... Goldie mm. Hawn could have done something interesting out of this, I think. I don't know. Probably not. Not with the script we have. Next, we have Burgess Meredith playing Harry. It's Mickey. Mickey. Mickey in Rocky's Corner. Prolific character actor. Before this, he was in Of Mice and Men in 1939. Tom, Dick, and Harry, The Diary of a Chambermaid. Lots of television. Batman the movie and the television series. He was the Penguin. From the 66 mm -hmm. version. Hurry Sundown, McKenna's Gold, Hard Contract, and There Was a Crooked Man. After this, The Hindenburg, Rocky, The Sentinel, Foul Play, Magic, Rocky 2, Clash of the Titans, True Confessions, Rocky 3, Rocky 5, Grumpy Old Men, and Grumpier Old Men. Mm -hmm. He plays the old man of the older men in Grumpy Old Men. He's phenomenal. Is he good in this movie? <laughs> He is good in this movie, even though this movie is bad. Okay. Because he's a salesman. He is the one person who knows what his character is. He is. He's a con man. He's, he's, he's an actor. He is an actor. He, he's a snake oil salesman. <laughs> and I got to sell this shit to people door to door. I got to sell it. And so like, even when he goes inside the house, because he's not feeling well, his daughter shows up and she thinks he's putting on a show for this dude. Because he always puts on a show. Cause, no, but clearly he's done something similar before to make a sale. Uh -huh. But this time, it, that's not what's going on. Yeah. But like, that's amazing. And he's phenomenal. He is. He's just, he's very captivating to watch. So he's really selling it. And so he's great. And I'm not going to disparage Mickey. I almost would have loved him in the in the Homer Simpson role. Somebody like him. Somebody with those skills, yes. Fair. Uh, but not him. But he, he was great in that role. And it would make sense. Her dad's a hustler. That makes sense. I'm okay with that. Who He's... could have been better? No one. Red Skelton. James Cagney. Hmm. Who would have been better as Homer. James Cagney with the sort of frumpy old man face. Used to be a gangster in 30s movies. Yeah. He would have been good for that. Especially if we were going to play with possible, I'm a criminal and I'm just not going to tell you. Yeah. That would have been good. And Eddie Albert. I don't know who that is. Mm. Lots of old actor dudes. Okay. But uh, Burgess Meredith is so fucking Meredith. good. Burgess Meredith. And finally, William Atherton playing Todd Hackett. He gets like the lowest billing, even though this is his movie. Okay, so we're watching, like, who is that? William Atherton. And so we're watching, and I'm like, yeah, I know who that is. Like, I've seen him and everything. And I was like, I know what I remember him from, Biodome. That's the movie that I know him from. That's my movie. He is best known for being the smarmiest asshole on screen. Yes. That's what you always know him as. Oh, that's because let me read you these movies yes. and then think about where he was. Mm -hmm. Before this, The New Centurions and The Sugarland Express. After this, The Hindenburg, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, Ghostbusters, in which he plays the guy at City Hall they have to deal with the whole movie. Which I completely forget about. Real genius. Die Hard. He's the fucking reporter guy. Yeah. Die Hard 2. Oscar. The Pelican Brief. Biodome. Hoodlum. Mad City, The Crow Salvation, and The Last Samurai. 
Oh, the biodome. Because I just imagine him hiding in the biodome. Ghostbusters Die Hard Biodome, three movies in which he plays the biggest fucking dick. And guess what? He does it in this movie too. He's really good at it. He's good at being a dick. I think he's actually pretty solid in this movie, despite the fact that the characters are so bad. Yeah, the characters are horrible. He's he's trying. He's trying. And I think for me, he actually reads the whole movie. Like it gets wackadoo right there at the end. But for a lot of this movie... He just seems like, I don't care. Mm -hmm. And you spurned me. I'm going full hellfire on you. Fair. He just turns full, full awful. It's. (laughs) Hey, guess what? I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I'm at. I don't care. Before we get to our pawns, let's talk about two actors who were considered for unspecified roles. Okay. And see where we might be able to put them. Mm. Malcolm McDowell. Hmm. Could have been a real interesting Todd, especially after seeing him play Alex in A Clockwork Orange. He could have been Todd in a heartbeat. No, I would have seen him. I would have liked him across from Atherton. Okay. All right. Dustin Hoffman. He would have demanded he play Todd. Probably. Because Dustin fucking Hoffman. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He would have been really good in the Donald Sutherland role, too. He's more neurotic. He is. That's why he would have been good in that role. I mean, Donald Sutherland got around to Neurotic eventually, but he wasn't there yet. No. He really wasn't. No. And I think this is one of those, like, Donald Sutherland is so fucking tall. Oh, God. Yeah. He's imposing on everybody around him. And I think think this is one of those movies where that actually worked against him. And Dustin Hoffman is actually pretty fucking short. Yeah. And this is what, I think this is where that would have helped him. A little bit. This is one of those things. They both go in that role. Yeah. That's what I say. Fair. All right. Well, let's talk about our pawns. We're going to mention a big one up top, kind of a bigger scene stealer. Geraldine Page playing Big Sister, the televangelist. Mm-hmm. You'd know her from The Rescuers, maybe Pope of Greenwich Village, The Trip to Bountiful. She's done a lot of stuff. Big time actress. Yep. But Big Sister is based on Sister Amy, who founded the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel in 1919. She was one of the first radio evangelists and built the Angelus Temple in Echo Park, which still stands today. That's kind of cool. It included two giant radio towers for her to broadcast her revival sermons. Thousands would attend. She was a faith healer. And donations were accepted with the admonishment, quote, no coins, please, unquote. No coins, please. Uh-huh. <laughs> no cheapskates. She died of an accidental overdose in 1944. And is buried in Forest Lawn Memorial Park in an elaborate grave adorned by white marble angels. Mm. So that's one of those visual scenes that was like, this whole thing rings true. It's so fucking good. The faith healer scene was fantastic. It was very well done. And just like, this is just as much a grift as anything else in this town. Oh, sure. (laughs) I enjoy that. It reminded me a lot of the movie uh, Leap of Faith. Yeah. Which I remember seeing that in theaters and I loved it. I haven't seen it in a while, so I don't know how it holds up. I don't, I don't know what the uh, uh, the ick factor is <laughs> on cultural relevance, but uh, I just remember enjoying it as a child. For other Arpons, we have Richard Dysart playing Claude S.D. He was Dr. Copper in The Thing, the first doctor who gets killed by the alien. Pepe Serna playing Miguel. He's best known as playing Tony Montana's partner, Angel, in Scarface. Oh, okay. Billy Barty as Abe. He is the founder of the Little People of America, 
And he has appeared in Masters of the Universe, Willow, Legend, and UHF. He's a well-known awesome. little person actor. That's cool. Despite the fact that he's kind of the grossest character in the whole He movie. is, but that's not his fault. No. Jackie Earl Haley playing Adore, the child. <laughs> this is before Bad News Bears. Okay. And then, of course, Little Children, Watchmen. We just talked about him in Lincoln. One of those child actors who has managed to thrive and have a great career into, into adulthood. Mm-hmm. Good for him. Madge Kennedy playing Mrs. Johnson. She was an early silent film star. And this is one of her last films. Florence Lake playing Lee Sister. She was a film star of the 30s and 40s. This is also one of her last films. Mm. Natalie Schaefer playing Audrey, the lady who runs the house for sex workers. You might know her as Mrs. Thurston Howell from Gilligan's Island. She popped up and I was like, I know her. Why do I know her? She looks familiar. And you're like, oh, it's Jodie Page. I was like, no, it's not. And then you're just like, oh, it's Mrs. Howell. I'm like, yes, it is. It's Lovey Howell. Lovey Howell. (laughs) It's like I spent many afternoons with you. We have Paul Stewart playing Helverston. Uh, He's sort of the assistant director guy. This is the same guy who played the journalist that was inserted into In Cold Blood. Oh, okay. William Castle playing the director at the end of the movie. He was an Arpon in Shampoo. He directed big horror movies in the 50s and 60s. Okay. Robert Pine playing an apprentice. He is the other half of Chips with Eric Estrada. Mm-hmm. Dennis Dugan as an apprentice. He became a longtime collaborator with Adam Sandler directing Happy Gilmore, Beverly Hills Ninja, Big Daddy, Saving Silverman, National Security, The Benchwarmers, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry, you don't mess with the Zohan, Grown Ups, just go with it, Jack and Jill, and Grown Ups too. Wow. <laughs> Bob Holt as the tour guide, he's a longtime voice actor who was the voice of the Mogwai in Gremlins. Not the voice of our main dude, but the voice of just gen- the general Mogwai. Bill Baldwin playing the announcer at the premiere. Third time we've mentioned this guy. Yeah. <laughs> he was the announcer in Funny Lady. He was the announcer in the Rocky movies, Funny Girl. And he's in this and he's in Sunshine Boys. He had a lot of announcing to do in 1975. It was, this is a busy year for <laughs> him. And Morgan Brittany playing Vivian Lee. She was Catherine Wentworth in Dallas. Oh, okay. And played Baby June in the film version of Gypsy. For awards, it was nominated for two Academy Awards. Best Supporting Actor for Burgess Meredith. I allow it. Best Cinematography for Conrad L. Hall. I allow it. (laughs) It's all the visuals, man. Mm. It's nothing else for this movie. No. Trivia. Trivia. When the tour guide mentions an actress jumping from the Hollywood sign, that was an actual thing that happened. It was actress Peg Entwistle in 1932. Hmm. Claude Estes' house is the Ennis House, designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. It's built out of cast concrete and based on a Mayan temple design. Okay. The film in which Faye gets a speaking role is Alibaba Goes to Town. That's an actual film. Eddie Cantor can be clearly seen on screen doing his his lines, but Karen Black has been superimposed over a role played by Gypsy Rose Lee. Most of the movies referenced in the film are actual 30s movies made by the Paramount Studios, uh, including Blonde Venus, I'm No Angel, and 
the film premiere that we see at the end of the movie, The Buccaneer. Okay. And the song Dancing on a Dime that we hear later in the movie is a reference to taxi dancers, women who worked in ballrooms where single men would be able to dance with them. They'd buy paper tickets from a cashier who'd tear them off a roll and pay 10 cents a piece. The dancer would get the ticket for a dance and they would get a few pennies commission. Okay. And that's it for this movie. All right. I had to dig deep on the trivia. There's not a lot. There's not a lot. Probably because two of the main dudes squeezed out the star. Yeah. 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 It's not great. This fucking movie. This movie's not good. I do not recommend. <sighs> well, for every film, we have to give it a rating. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Especially when we watch a movie like this. I don't want to. I don't want to rate it. But of course, they have their own specific rating system. And in this case... Are we going with spotlights? No, I want to give it how many bottles of the, the elixir that he's selling. Oh, the magic, the, the, magi- the magical miracle solution. Yeah. Yeah. Because I like Burgess Meredith, and for that, you get half a point. <laughs> That's it. That's all you fucking get. That's the only thing I like in the movie. That's what I'm going to give you. Half a point. Fuck this movie. It's bad. It's just bad. I do not recommend. Don't watch it. Not worth it. I'm annoyed at you for making me watch it. Um, <laughs> better. And you made the last one. Uh, the movie we watched before. I was like, this movie was the most enjoyable one. And we sh- now we, we should have to- ended on a high note. We should have ended on a high note and you made me end on this. And I'm annoyed at you. And you're going to do better next year. <laughs> well, I don't know. We've already had arguments about that. Yes, <laughs> yes, we're already arguing about next year's series. For me, I'm going to go one. One, simply based on the premise that I saw rare moments of things I really enjoyed, mm-hmm. a tone and a vibe which I really enjoyed. And so I go, there's something here that I wish I could have had, but it's so badly done that I can't enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my my little film snob heart. It, it got a little excited, but not very much. But hey, you know what? We've watched all of the big movies for 1975. We've watched all the movies on our slate for 1975. Uh, These were great. (laughs) They were not good. There is for sure a clear and present movie that stands up above the rest. Yeah, and like, I haven't been under a rock, so like, I know it took home the prizes. (laughs) But I'll also say it wasn't it wasn't all bad. There's still some some pretty good movies mixed in there with a lot of it. Mm-hmm. This year is so much style over substance. Mm-hmm. It's so style over substance. And I almost feel like that might be the story of a lot of the 70s in filmmaking. <laughs> that feels accurate. Not to say that we haven't seen great 70s movies. We've talked about Taxi Driver here mm-hmm. and like as difficult as that movie is, it still it's holds really up really good. well. It's really good. The Godfather is the Godfather, man. Yeah. I mean, and it's big for a reason. We haven't talked about that film on this show because we've seen it before. Yeah. We may get to a place where we just need to revisit some of those films because they're classics and we love them. And it has been a while since we've seen it. Uh, we may have to do a classic series just to get to get those conversations <laughs> on, like on record. And because they're films that you and I watched so early on in our relationship that it's been so long since we revisited them. Yeah. That might, that might be worth it. And then y'all can, slip, I don't know, y'all can hear our bitching. <laughs> but even, even with those movies, we talked about it with Apocalypse Now. These movies are still really good, but they are still favored style over substance. Yeah. 
Like, what's really compelling about those movies is how they're made, not what they say. That does seem to be the theme for the 70s. And it's just it's just an interesting time. I, I don't begrudge that because a lot of directors were, you know, they were like, we don't like the way people make movies in America. Mm-hmm. We've studied all these French and... Japanese and foreign directors who make really amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. We want to do that here. Which like I don't blame them for and that's cool. But, but at like, a certain point <laughs> you still you, there should still be a story. There should God, be a point. Writing man. You can't save bad writing. You really can't. Like you can improve it. You can make it less bad. You can make people not care about the bad writing. No you can make people not care about the bad writing. Yeah. By making the movie fun. Or just gorgeous, um, <laughs> which is the case with a lot of Kubrick. Um, <laughs> you made it interesting, so yeah. people people didn't notice. That's a lot of it. Also, that's his thing. He's a gimmick. He's a gimmick. Um, <laughs> we but, had, we had to talk about him one more time. Fuck you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, you got it. You got it. The writing, it's important. It really is. Well, let's see what kind of jokes they wrote for the people who presented. At the 1976 Academy Awards, we have to go watch the ceremony now. Oh, jeez. And talk about who won, who lost, and all of the wild-ass 70s outfits that are sure to be on display. I'm sure some of it is super fun. Oh, I can guarantee you there's going to be some fun in the middle there. There better be. Otherwise, what's the point of all this? (laughs) But before we get out of here today, let's talk about some new movies we've seen movies all right this week we watched minari a korean family starts a farm in 1980s arkansas yep this is a lovely film it is a lovely film it's Um, a sweet wonderful movie that is not at the top level it's not i understand why everyone loves it yeah, because it is. It's a beautiful film. It's a lovely story. If it weren't for this year, this film would have gotten a lot of praise at like Indie Spirit, maybe um, Gotham Awards, maybe. But it here's the thing: it's an indie film here in the in the U.S. It's an indie film up against another really awesome entry of an indie film, Sound of Metal. Sound of Metal wins. They all kind of feel like indie films. <laughs> they this all, year. a lot of them are. And that's kind of how they're competing in a lot of ways. Um, this year is just very, it's very strange. I love that because a million more people are going to see this film than probably would have before. It's beautiful. I loved it. Stephen Young, love him. To me, to me, where it just falls below some of the big of some of the big contenders that we've watched this year is that its performances have to rise above a slightly messier script. The story isn't there. The script is not there. It's just, it's not quite as good. It's still a great story, no. but it's just not quite as good as some of the other ones we've seen. No, it, it doesn't have the same polish or punch. Yeah. It's still, it's still a beautiful film. It's definitely worth seeing. Both its performance nominations are well earned. Absolutely. Uh, loved, love both of them. Um, I really want Steven Yen to, to win. I love him, but you know, second, he wears a red hat in the film. And I'm just like, hi, Glenn. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's testament to him. That's just his character, but also just like, I just, I love him. So, but I'll also say, if you, if you need a not 
too awful family movie just to have a nice evening and watch something sweet. This is a good movie. Yes, but you you are going to have to read it. Unless you speak Korean, it is not in English, which is amazing and I love it. This is this is an American film, but it is spoken in Korean. More of this. More yes. of that. For sure. Yes. Um, which I know is a new concept to a lot of people, but is also a thing that is very, very real. So um, I love it. Also tells me I'm super excited to see what Lee Isaac Chung continues to do. Yes. Because yes. if nothing else, it's a hugely promising entry from a director who's already done a lot and is going to get to do a lot more. Yeah. I think aside from score and maybe Steven, I don't think this is getting anything. It's not going home with anything. The, the nominations are very warranted, but I don't think it's going to be able to take anything home. Yeah, not this year. Nope, sorry. That being said, go watch it. It's, it's, worth, it's worth a watch. All right, well, until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.